Lord, indeed, it is the name of Jesus that is everything we need. It is the name of your Son. It is the name of the one that we come together to worship today that binds us together. Lord, help us not to forget that. Help us to look to you as we go to your word this morning. I pray that you would guide our minds and our hearts to understand your word, understand what it means to live a life which is more and more like you each and every day. And Lord, just use your word today to speak to our lives, speak to our hearts. Allow us to commit our ways to you this morning as we remember your powerful and holy name. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as many of you know, here, uh, maybe a week and a half, two weeks ago, uh, and I'll just be honest and say I'm not exactly sure what, when it was, I don't remember, but you'll know a few weeks ago that uh, President Trump gave the State of the Union Address, and this is not the first time this happens, it's every year, right? Every year the State of the Union Address is given, doesn't matter what president is seated, uh, and uh, they come, and the idea of the State of the Union is to declare to Congress and to the American people exactly where the United States is on things. Now, uh, usually this uh, is an interesting night and it goes for a while and every time something is brought up, uh, you know, we, everybody, at least the people that agree, stand up and they clap uh, and the people who don't agree sit, sit there and scowl, right? This is, it, it happens every year. This isn't a surprise to us. It's funny though because I think about the State of a Union Address and I think about how interesting it is that the name of it, just think of the name of it, the State of the Union. State of the Union, right? So this isn't uh, State of the Country, uh, this isn't State of the United States even, this isn't State of uh, the State of a certain political party, right? This is the State of the Union. And yet, no matter, and I'm, this is not a political statement by any means. It doesn't matter if there's a Republican president, a Democratic president, if there was an independent president, if there ever was, it wouldn't matter. Whoever's up there, as they give their speech, as they say where the, where the country is, it is, you'll never see even the people that are there in the house to stand up together, united. I mean, maybe it's happened before. I'm sure at times it has. But as I just said, it's interesting. You've got a bunch that'll stand up and clap, and then you've got a bunch that'll sit there and look like there's no other place they'd rather not be. And, and, they'd rather, rather, and so we see that happening. And I've always found that interesting as I've watched the few that I've watched. Like, the State of the Union isn't really union, right? There's no union there. What is union? What is the idea? We say that phrase all the time when we talk about, you know, the United States, United States, the union, right? What is that? What is it? What is it about that? Well, it's about the fact that we are meant, as it was originally created, that all the states would be together as one union. They would be one. And yet, we don't see that today. I think it's fair to say, and I, like I said, I don't think this is a political statement that should charge anybody up, but I think it's fair to say that our country is not un unified. It is not of a union at this moment. And perhaps it never has been. It, there seems to always be this bickering and fighting and every day you turn on the news, there's a new problem with our government. There's a new problem with our country. 
Our country's been shut down a couple times, and all these different things are happening. And it's, a, it's craziness every time we go to the news. And so, in a sense, I almost want to laugh when I hear somebody say, we're going to have the state of the union, because then whoever is preaching always makes it sound, sound or not preaching, uh, whoa, uh, all right, so not, when, whoever is giving the speech... Right? They make it sound like everything is great. Everything is, if you will, is hunky-dory, but it's not, right? And they make this statement, and, um, and it's interesting, but the idea there is to show how America is coming together as one, and yet so many times what is said and what is actually happening don't reflect one another. And uh, as I come to this time of being able to be back, to be able to be preaching again, um, in a sense, what I'm going to say today, what I want to preach, what God has laid on my heart, and not only my heart, but honestly the heart of the elders, as we got together and we discussed what is it that we should be preaching, what is it that we should be teaching, and we've come to this point where I believe in a sense today, in the next couple weeks as I'm able to share, and then Steve will also be up here to share, that we're going to see, in a sense, the state of the union of this church, the state of the union, and, and obviously the word that we're going to be using today is union or unity. Uh, and to start out with, just to make sure everybody's on the same page going forward, we put out a phone tree this week, but I want to make sure everybody knows. We didn't announce it, but as we talk about the union of this church, I just want to say that as far as the staff search goes, specifically with Will Reichel, we are going to be uh, stopping the process. We're going to be just Cutting it off right now, we feel that there's other things that we need to talk about, teach on, worry about. Uh, it's not to do with that we feel that he was even unqualified, but instead that what was happening in our church was something that we didn't want to continue. That there seems to be some disunity here. And it wasn't just around a person, but a disunity that might even be deeper than that. And maybe you don't know what I'm talking about, and that's great, but maybe you do. Maybe you've been on one side or the other of this, this divide, this disunity that we're facing. And so as a result, we're going to be going to the book of Ephesians. And in the book of Ephesians, as we talk through this for several weeks, we're going to talk about what unity is all about. What is it that we can be unified over? How is it that we can really be a union together as we're united to Christ? And we're going to look at a lot of things. And as we look at these things, it's my prayer and my hope for this church as a whole that all of us, no matter what side of any issue we might be on, would be able to come together as one. And that is the goal of the elders, the, 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 the goal of not only the elders, but also as we follow Christ, we see that unity, unity and union is vitally important, not only to us as a church, but also to Christ himself. And so that's why we're going to find ourselves in the book of Ephesians. And in the book of Ephesians, in a sense... To carry on this illustration, Paul is giving the Ephesian church a state of the union address. He's telling them how they should be united. It's interesting, and we'll look at this in just a second, but Ephesians as a whole, if we take little pieces, a lot of you know some of Ephesians. A lot of you have probably memorized some of Ephesians. You know, as we talk about issues of sovereignty, we talk about issues of election, we talk about issues of how to live our faith, what Christ has done, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that we are saved by grace. All of these things, and we separate them out. We see the, the, uh, the classic armor, right? The, the spiritual armor that we are to put on. And it's, it's a great book. There is a lot of truth in the book of Ephesians. And yet I'm afraid that sometimes we miss 
what God really wants to say through a book when we isolate certain sections. And so what we're going to see today, I believe, and as we go forward with this, is that what Paul is writing in Ephesians is what God is telling him to write as it regards to Christian unity. And so that's where we're going to be. And we're going to start, not at the beginning of Ephesians, we're actually going to start in chapter 4, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 6 this morning. So if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Please excuse me, I am getting through a cold right now, so I'd appreciate your prayers that I won't have to keep getting the tissues out. But uh, as we come together here to Ephesians chapter 4, I want to read the first six verses, and we won't stop here in the next few weeks. We'll actually be going, and I'm not even sure how far we'll even go, but we'll be going through at least chapter 4, possibly into chapter 5. But for today, we're going to be focused on, we're going to park at 1 through 6. So if you'd join me in reading from Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. By the end of this morning, I want to unpack these six verses and see what Paul has to say about what unity looks like in the body of Christ. And so we're going to ask three very basic questions as we come to this passage that there are three questions that are asked in this passage, and this is a little bit of background, and we'll get there, but Ephesians is broke up into two sections. If you know anything about Ephesians, and a lot of Paul's writings are very similar, but it's interesting that we actually see almost, identical, almost half and half in the book of Ephesians. What we will see is chapters 1 through 3 is a theological framework of the gospel. It's Paul talking about what Jesus has done, and specifically what Jesus has done to not only save us, but to unite us. So for the first three chapters of Ephesians, you're actually going to see a half of the book that is devoted to this is what Jesus has done. It's a, it's a theology. It's telling us about who God is, what he has done, and how that, how that has caused us to be unified. And then starting here in chapter 4 through chapter 6, Paul takes all of those theological concepts that he broke down in the first three chapters and he breaks it down into how to, how to live it out, how to live out what he's already talked about theologically. Because it's not just enough to know about Jesus or to have knowledge about who he is, but it has to flow then into how we live. And so Paul uses these two sections, one through three, to talk about the gospel and its impact on our unity, and really four through six as you will look through this, you will see it is a way of living, and it is a way of living in unity with one another. The concept will be seen as we go throughout the book, but it's interesting that you understand that because now we find ourselves in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, now we start, how do you live what we believe? And so the first question we have to answer this morning is, according to this passage, what should we, we, what should we do? What should we be doing? 
And what does Paul say in here in chapter 4, verse 1? It says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what are we to do? What are we to do as the body of Christ? Well, first we are to live a life worthy of our calling. That's what Paul says. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We need to live a life that is worthy of his calling on our life. And you say, well, that's pretty vague. And actually, it is pretty vague if you look at just this verse. However, what is our calling is the question we've got to ask. Live a life worthy of our calling. What is the calling that God has called us out to? Well, and I've said this before when I've preached. You've probably heard it from other preachers as well. This isn't unique to me. But whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, there's a reason that it's there. So what is the therefore, therefore? That's the question we're asking. Here in 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, and then says that we need to walk in a worthy manner, to walk in a life worthy of our calling. What does that look like? Well, Paul is relating back to what he's already written. We can't understand what 4 verse 1 means or until we understand what the rest of Ephesians says. And so you're going to join me this morning on a journey. As we go through the first three chapters of Ephesians, don't worry, we're not going to break it down verse by verse. We're going to go section by section. But we're going to read Ephesians and I'm going to draw out a few things from each section as we go. And as we do that, that will help us then to understand what it is that Paul is referring to when he says that we need to be living a life worthy of our calling. And so let's start by going all the way back to Ephesians chapter 1. If you would turn with me, we will be doing a lot of reading. I'm not going to apologize for that because I think it's God's word that needs to be read and God's word that needs to do the teaching. And so as we go through Ephesians chapter 1 and then on all the way through chapter 3, I'm just going to read, I'm going to stop, I'm going to make a few points, and then we're going to move on. In no way is this going to be an exhaustive reading or an exhaustive uh, understanding of Ephesians. I would would encourage you to go to the book, to read it this week, to study it for yourselves, and really dig deep into the depth of this book. We're going to be kind of on the surface as we go through, but I would really encourage you to even go further as you go in your own personal study. So this is where we get back to in Ephesians chapter 1, seeing what Paul is referring to when he says, therefore. And this is what he starts to teach us here all the way back in chapter 1. And we're going to start with chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Please follow along with me as I read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, from which he has blessed us in the Beloved." In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth 
in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might also be to the praise of his glory. But in him you also, when you heard this word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." There's a lot here. I want to draw out a few things. Obviously, we understand here in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, that Paul is opening up this letter to the Ephesian churches. And we've got to understand, once again, Ephesus and the surrounding area is a major trade area, right? And so there's lots of beliefs that are being circulated around. There are Jews and Gentiles that are together. And that is exactly where we find ourselves in Ephesus, much the same as we found ourselves in Colossae. And Paul starts out by just giving this beautiful poetry, this beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us, that he has adopted us, that he has given, he has brought us holiness and he has even brought us unity, that we are all to be part of God's family. The idea of adoption as sons, that we all have one inheritance, that we are all together with one as being adopted by Christ. We are all one family. We can't miss that point. This passage is not just written to uh, individuals. This is not just written to individual people to claim these truths, although we can. It is written to a people. It is written to a church. It is written to a group of people that understand that there is an inheritance and an adoption that we share and we are part of the same family. God has brought us into his family and therefore we are in family with one another. In verse 110, in verse 10, this is what we see. Uh, he says all this. He talks about Jesus, what he's done, who he is, how he's chosen us before the foundation of the world. And he says in verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus, his ministry, was yes to save, it was to unite. It was to bring all things together. And I believe this refers to the end of time when everything is finally right the way it should be. I also believe that this is talking about people, that God would bring people together. What specific people? Well, I think we see that and I'm, in Scripture, which is very clear, here in verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. In him we have obtained the inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of will, of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In verse 13, in whom you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now these verses here, it's easy to miss because we're looking at pronouns, but if most scholars agree, and I would agree, as we look at Scripture, and even as we look at this section where it talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon people, that is a reflection of Acts. If you remember the book of Acts, who were the first people to come to know Jesus? Church, say it out loud. First people, Jews, right? Somebody said it. The first people that the good news of Jesus came to were Jews at Pentecost. And that is where everything started. The gospel is being shared. People are accepting Jesus. And then throughout the book of Acts, what do we see happen? At some point in Acts, the Jews aren't the only ones. Who else start re receiving the gospel? The Gentiles. And so Paul is re referencing this 
And this is what we see. He says, we who were the first to hope in Christ, the Jews, right, that they would be to the praise of his glory. But then it says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth. What is Jesus uniting together? He's uniting Jews and Gentiles. There's no longer a separation that they can come as one into the family of Jesus Christ. That there, there is not a separation in the sense that there is, they are one family. That they are together under Jesus Christ. And that there can be now unity among these two groups of people. This was a big deal at this time. To us, it's like, okay, yeah, big deal. It was a huge deal at the time. Jews and Gentiles wanted nothing to do with one another. Jews said the Gentiles were unclean and unworthy of being around them. There was no unity. There was complete disunity. There was nothing they didn't want to have because they were the people of God. And how dare the Gentiles be close to us? Even though we see that God's plan from the beginning of time was to unite all nations under him. And yet Israel missed that. They thought that they could just hoard God to themselves. And then they, they kept it away from the Gentiles. And then Jesus comes and he says, no, under me we can all be one family This is what Ephesians says. I'm not making this up. We are all one in the gospel. Jesus saves all people, not just Jews, not just Gentiles. He saves all people to come together as the body of Christ, as the family of Christ. And so this is where we start the book. That God, through Jesus Christ, who saved us and chose us all to be part of one family through the salvation he offers But then we continue, starting in verse 15. Read again with me. We'll be reading verse 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints." And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. Paul prays that the church remembers and understands the mutual blessings we have and the power of Christ over all things. And he wants to remind us of that, but even in the midst of reminding as he prays that we would remember our adoption, that we would remember our inheritance, that we would remember who we are in Christ. He even goes on and then says, uh, first of all, uh, here in verse, uh, verse 18, uh, what do we see him say? Well, in verse 18, he says this, having your eyes and your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. This phrase here is referring again to the fact that there is a people that are being saved, a people that are having an inheritance. It's not just an individual thing. This is the church The church that Christ is uniting together with the saints, that's how we experience our inheritance. And then as we continue here in this passage, we see in verses 22 through 23 that that the church is called the body of Christ. We see that Jesus is the head and the church is the body. We are his body. 
That's the same analogy we'd see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12 where there's this idea that we are all one body working together, united as a body. Not random body parts that are distributed everywhere, but everyone comes together as a body and Christ is the head. And so we see this family idea, this unity idea, even in that second section of chapter 1. With the time we have, let's move on to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now this is probably one of the most famous passages in Ephesians. And let's take some time to read it and make some observations. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work of the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Very simply, this passage tells us again that salvation through grace changes everything. It removes everything that came before that the grace of God who saves us now has seated us with him, that we have been saved through his grace. It's nothing that we can do. It's not by our religion. It's not by the way we live. It is exactly what it says, that we have faith in Christ, that he has given us graciously the salvation that we need if we'll only accept it. And this offer is not just to a certain group. This offer is to all people, that if they will accept Jesus, if they will understand what he's done, the grace that is given to us can and will save. And we are all saved on the same basis. There's not one person that's saved based on works and another person that's saved based on grace. There's, everybody is saved by one way, and that is through faith in Jesus as a result of grace. We see that to be true. There are no, all, there are no levels of how you can become saved. No, Jesus is it. His grace is everything. And we can unite under that one hope. Verse 11 through 22, please continue with me. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of its commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create in himself one new man in place of the two so that making peace he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
and through him we both have access to one spirit in the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This passage, uh, it pretty much speaks for itself, but let's just take some time and look at what Paul is saying. He's writing to a church that is primarily a Gentile church, and what he is saying is, God has brought you Gentiles into God's family, and you're now part of the same household. That's the word he uses, the same family. We see that here in verse 19 is where he talks about the household of God. But you who are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, Gentiles and Jews together are part of one family. That there is no longer a separation. Where at one point what they're actually told is as Gentiles there was no hope. There was no hope for them because they didn't have access to God. And now they have direct access to God through Jesus Christ, through the grace that had been given. And now... There can be unity. Now there is one household. There is one people. And that's what we see here in this passage. We also see in verse 14 that Jesus is our peace. And he has broken the hostility. Like I said earlier, Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. And Jesus himself breaks the hostility. And he says no longer is there going to be separation. No longer is there going to be uh, discord. There is no longer the separation there. In Christ you can be one family. And if that's a question, we can continue looking at verse 14, 15, and 18, in which each point, Paul writes about us being one in different ways, that we are one together, not two any longer, but one. There is one new man to replace the two, that together we are one. There is unity to be had in the spirit of Christ. As Christ has given us his spirit, now we have unity. The Holy Spirit brings that in our lives, and we see that here in this passage. One last point to make in this section, verses 21 and 22. What does it say? It says the whole structure, talking about being a house, right? Being joined together into a holy temple in the Lord. And then it says, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling place. We are being brought together as one. Whereas body was used before, family is used, now it's this building, this temple. We are together coming together to be the praise of God. And so we see that to be true here in this passage as well. Now moving on to chapter 3, we're going to look at the first 13 verses. We're getting there. We're almost back to 4. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan and the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have the boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This passage in chapter 3, there's so much here, it's so powerful to see. But Paul talks about this mystery. Now a mystery, literally what a mystery means is something that is yet to be revealed. It doesn't mean that God didn't know what he was doing. What it means is throughout the Old Testament, we know from the very beginning that God's plan is to redeem all nations, all peoples. And yet throughout the Old Testament, what did we see? God was working through his people, the Israelites, and through Israel is how he was working. And we see that to be true. And, and as we go on then, we see that this, now how is God going to reach all the nations? Well, the mystery is being revealed. The mystery that has not been understood before, but now is being understood by those who are the apostles, the New Testament prophets, those who are here. They're understanding that Jesus Christ is the answer to that mystery. That Jesus Christ is going to unite all people. That Jesus Christ is the one to save Jews and Gentiles. You see, a lot, of people, a lot of Jewish minds, their Messiah was coming to save the Jewish people. He was coming to ride in on a white horse and overthrow the governments that were continuing to overthrow and to rule over Israel. And that's what Israel was looking for. But God's plan was different than Israel's plan. God's plan was to bring Jesus to unite people under him. And that's what we see here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And here's the mystery of God joining all people together under Christ is the eternal plan. This was not just a plan B. All right, well, the Jews, all right, so I don't know what I'm going to do here, so let's go ahead and add the Gentiles in. No, this was God's plan from the beginning, to bring the people of this earth together under him, that people who will accept Jesus as their Savior, that it would be access to all people and not just certain few. And so we see that to be true here in chapter 3. But chapter 3, verse 10, I want to look at that real quick, real quick. It says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly places. Part of the purpose of this whole idea of God bringing people together as a church is to show the wisdom of God. It's to show God to the world. It's to show God even to Satan and his, his demons. It's to show that God is working. There's a miracle being done that the church is showing the manifold, the, the seeing, we can see the wisdom of God. That God in his wisdom from the beginning of time knew that he could bring people together that in and of ourselves without his spirit could never happen. Unity is a real reality. That's a double word, I know. But it's a reality that we need to understand and God through his spirit is the one that can unite. Finally, chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. For this reason I bow my knees before God the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant to you to be strengthened with all power through his Spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or we think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Paul closes the first three chapters with a prayer. 
Before he jumps into the practical nature of this book in chapter 4, he ends the first three chapters with a prayer. And what is he praying? Well, he's praying for strength. He's praying that we will be strengthened together with the strength of Christ. He's praying that we would love one another. That Christ would dwell in our hearts. That we'd be rooted and grounded in love. He's praying for love. He's praying for strength. Ultimately, he's praying for maturity, that we would know Jesus, that we would comprehend Jesus, that we would know his love, that we would understand him and we would live out that understanding. That is what he's saying here, that we would become, we'd understand the fullness of God. In verse 18, talks about the love that we understand or how we understand who God is and all that he is and his love. And here's what it says, which is very interesting. Once again, as I'm saying, this is not to individuals, this is to a group. And what this says here is very similar. It say you may have the strength to comprehend with all the with all the saints the depth, the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ with all the saints. Not that you would individually understand these things, although that's important. It's in, it's important that we individually understand who Christ is and what His love means, and we're never going to fully quite comprehend that. But it does say here that as we endeavor to understand God better, we need to do it with the saints. That we do it as we're united together, as we are moving forward together in love. And then he says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. I hear this verse used a lot. It's kind of up in that, in that area where you know, Philippians 4.13 is used a lot. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This verse a lot of times is taken out of context. It's just used for any time we want something to happen, but we don't really know if it can, but we know God can do it, so we'll quote this verse. I'm not saying that's all wrong, but what I'm saying is we're missing the context. As Paul prays this, as Paul is talking in Ephesians, what is he saying here? He's like, yes, of course, God can do abundantly more than we ask or more than we think. Yes, God will do more than we can even imagine. That is true. But think about what he's already done. He has united Jews and Gentiles, people that were viciously against one another and through Christ he has brought all people together that's an impossible task and yet God has done it through the person of Jesus Christ and why has he done it well we see here even at the very last verse 21 to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever the point of what God has done is to bring himself glory that he would look good to the world that he would show himself to be who we know he is That we would show him to be the merciful, loving, just, uh, holy God that he is. That his glory would be seen in the church and in Jesus Christ. That his glory would be seen. So the idea of the first three chapters, if I'm going to sum it all up, and I know this is hard to do, it's a lot to sum up in in just a few words, would be this. Going back to chapter 4 where it says, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The calling that we are called to is that we would be a unified family of believers in Jesus Christ. Remember the ideas of adoption, holiness, unity. They're all in the first three chapters. That we would come together under Jesus Christ. And that's the important thing. Not manufacture a false unity like we might try to do with our country, but this is a true unity that can come only as a result of Jesus and everything that he's done, everything he is, and the glory that we then give him as a result of being united together in the gospel. 
that as we get to chapter 4, Paul is saying the way you walk worthy of your calling, it's not about following do's and don'ts. Sometimes I've heard that verse say, well, you just need to follow God. That's what, yes, we need to follow God, but it's not about do's and don'ts. It's not about uh, different, a list of things that we need to do versus lists that we, that we shouldn't do. No, walking a life that is worthy of the calling that we have had is a life in which we honor Jesus Christ, we glorify Jesus Christ, and we do that in unity together. I believe that the book of Ephesians, as you look at it as a whole, and there's lots of great things we can draw out, but as a whole, I believe this, this book is all about what Christ has done to unify people. It's a book of unity, and that's why we're going to be studying it for the next few weeks. Because our desire as elders is that all of us will come together in unity as we follow Jesus together. I know I've done a whole lot of background I've got two more questions we need to get to. The first question we asked was, what should we do? We should live a life worthy of our calling. And that calling is to glorify God as a unified family of believers in Jesus Christ. That is our call. So the next question here, back to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, is how do we do it? So if we're to follow our calling of unity, of giving God glory through unity in Jesus Christ, if that is our calling, how do we do it? Well, luckily, not luckily, providentially, as God puts it in his word, we see what that looks like. We see how this can, be, this can happen. How do we follow our calling? Starting at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 2 and 3 is where we are. And what do we see? Well, we see some things. How do we live this worthy calling, this life that is this calling that we've been called to? Well, it starts with all humility. All humility and gentleness. These words really are kind of like a, a, a pair. They go together. But let's talk about what these look like. With humility. Maybe your version says lowliness. Humility, lowliness, that is, that is what we're looking at. And it's not making ourselves to be absolutely nothing. It's understanding who we are in Christ. And it's, it's understanding that we are nothing compared to him. And yet we are everything in the sense that he loves us. We are not, it's not about bad self-esteem, right? It's not about, oh, I'm such a terrible person. But it's understanding who God is. And understanding that we don't compare at all. And so we need to live for him. I found this definition as I was studying this week. And I, uh, I tweaked it a little bit. But I really like how the, what this says. I don't even know where I found it. It was a couple different places. But true humility or loneliness is this, to think most of Jesus, much of others, and least of ourselves. Once again, what is humility? It's to think most of Jesus, much of others, least of ourselves. That is what humility is. And without humility, unity can't happen. Unity that Christ has already bought for us through his spirit is going to be thwarted if we do not have humility in which what happens is we put aside our own desires and put the lives of others first. That we follow Jesus first, put others second, and then finally we would be the least among those. That is our calling. That is how we pursue unity. That is how we live in the unity that Christ has already bought for us. It's through being humble. If you turn over with me, to the book of Philippians real quickly. Just to back this up even further, many of you know this passage, but we cannot talk about humility without bringing this passage up. Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5. 
Philippians 2, 3 through 5. And here we read this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look for his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The passage goes on to talk about how Jesus humbled himself to the point of emptying himself so that he could come to the earth and die for our sins. So what is humility? Well, it's very simple. It's putting ourselves last. It's saying Christ is first and foremost, then I'm going to look out for the good of others, and then I'll worry about myself. And the idea here is that we won't elevate our own desires. We won't elevate our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own whatever it is above those of others. That we will listen, that we will correspond, that we will know one another and we will put others first and not jump to our own conclusions and not just stick, on our, stick by ourselves, but to, con- but to look and listen to others. That is how we can maintain the unity that God has given as we talk about humility, it's also interesting. I don't know if I'm going to be the one preaching this or if we'll get there, but I want to just turn over back to Ephesians, but I want to go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5.21. Ephesians 5.21. And we could read a lot more context with this, but this is just before he starts talking about wives and husbands and, and children and their parents and slaves and masters. But what he says in Ephesians 5.21, as he talks about all that Christ has done and how we should be walking, what it says in verse 21 is this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I believe here that humility and submission go hand in hand. That if we are to truly be humble, that we will submit to one another. I know a few weeks ago we had a sermon in which it was talking about submitting to the elders That's part of it. But here in Ephesians, we see a greater emphasis here on submitting to one another. That I will put myself second or last for your sake, and I hope you'll do the same for me. And as we work together and we mutually submit to one another, we mutually listen, understand, and go forward together, even when we disagree, even when we don't understand each other, even when we have even fierce disagreements, Can we submit to one another and say, even though I disagree, I still am going to love you and walk this through with you? Are we willing to put aside our own feelings, thoughts for the good of others? And that applies to all of us, every single person here. If we will mutually submit to one another, then disunity will not be a a problem. It will not rear its ugly head because we will be submitting to one another, and that is humility. But with humility, back to chapter 4, because I do want to get through all this. Back to chapter 4, with humility, we also see the idea of gentleness. It says, uh, with all humility and gentleness, maybe your translation says meekness. Gentleness, lowliness, meekness, uh, it all goes together. Uh, Now, meekness is an interesting word. We don't use it that often. We don't usually talk about people being meek. A lot of the time it's because our culture says that being meek is weak. You've probably heard that. It's actually not true. Uh, meekness, I found one of the greatest explanations. It finally made me help to understand this, right? Uh, I found this uh, when we talk about meekness. In biblical times, a lot of times the word meekness was used in talking about farm animals or animals that you would tame. 
uh, this is interesting. So meekness is really to be tame. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean weak. The, the animals that were being used to plow and to do those work, they're still strong and they still have their instincts. But even think today, think about a dog. A dog, if it's let to go free and not be tamed, it can do a lot of damage because it's got a lot of power. It's got a lot there. But if you tame an animal, it, it learns to resist its instincts and instead be gentle, be tame. Like that's the animal that you can come and you can pet. Where Think about it. Would you go out and pet a wolf? No, I'd hope not. If you try, you're probably losing some fingers. But we, but we can go to a dog and pet because they are tame. And so we as Christians are called to be humble, but we're also called to be tame. That we suppress our instincts. Because let's, let's face it, our instincts when, when things go wrong or when, things, when people offend us or when things are going and there's this little bit of uh, friction, our, our tendency as, as humans is to get very angry, to run away, or to fight, right? But that is not what we're called to do. We're called to be meek, to be tame. Even though we are not get, making ourselves weak, but we are using even the strength that we have, and we are taming it. We are using it in a godly, wise way. So this is what meekness is talking about. We are controlled in the face of the pressure of the flesh. The flesh wants us to act in a certain way, and yet we allow the spirit to tame us to be meek. So we need to be humble. We need to be meek. We also need to, next, we see that we need to be patient, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Again, these two phrases go together. Being patient, we just talked about that in ABF if you were with us. And uh, it was a great ABF. And by the way, you need to try to get to ABF. If you're not coming, you're missing out on some real great stuff. Some good learning, some good teaching, and just some good time together. And so I know that's not part of my sermon, but go to ABF. Because it's a, such a blessing. And it's so in, in, incredible that God brought that ABF lesson the same time we're preaching this. And so we're talking about patience. The word patience here literally means long-suffering or long-tempered. The idea is that you will not be quick to anger. Just like God is long-suffering. How many things have we done to God that have spat in his face? And yet he continues to love us. And he continues to be patient with us. And we need to be patient with one another, enduring in love even when we're wronged, even when we suffer, even when people want to get at us and want our temper to rise. We need to not let it rise, but instead be patient, be long-suffering, be loving through it and not let anger overcome us. That is patience. It's not fighting back. Even when you're wronged, even when you're suffering, don't fight back. That's not the godly way to do it because that is not going to preserve the unity that Christ has bought for us. Then the next thing is bearing with one another in love, or some of you may see it as forbearance. This goes right along with, with patience, right? We forbear. We love people enough not to give up on them. That's what this phrase is all about. No matter how many times you're wronged, it's like, okay, I can be patient up to a certain level, but uh, you get too far and I'm just going to have nothing to do with you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to leave you alone because I don't want everything to do with you. That is not forbearance. You're giving up on somebody. So be patient and don't give up. Whether it's a person that, is, that you're having trouble with or whatever it might be or even a person that has really offended you, whatever it is, don't just give up on them but forbear in love. That you would bear with one another in love, even the times you're annoyed, even the times where you just don't think you can stand it any longer. Give time. Don't give up on people. As we continue on here, 
in verse 3. What does it look like to follow our calling of unity through Jesus as we give glory to God? Well, it's to, here in, chapter, in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The third set of two we see here, maintaining the unity of the Spirit. I like this word maintain. It's actually a very good translation as we think about it. Maintaining the unity of the Spirit. I want to be very clear here. What we're preaching, what we're talking about today is not that we can somehow manufacture unity. That somehow it's up to us and we can make it happen. We can't because we're human. We're fleshly. We're going to fight. We're going to be disunified unless we let the Spirit of God do His work. Unless we let God be in our hearts and in our lives so that we can unify together. That is the only way. You see, it says that we are maintaining unity. We're not creating unity. The unity that the Spirit has already given us as a result of what Christ has done, it's already here. We just have to embrace it. So let's maintain it. It's similar to a marriage. I'm married to my wife. We're unified together. We are one flesh. We are one person in a sense. But that doesn't mean that we can just decide not to work at it. Like, oh, I'll see you once a week and then, you know, we'll, we'll say a couple words to each other. That's not a good marriage, right? We're still married. We're still unified in that sense. But we're not living it out. And the same is true in our, in our Christian lives as well. And remember, too, that this idea of being eager to maintain the unity is a present participle. What this means is what it really in Greek is saying is continually be eager to maintain the unity. This is not a one-day thing. Every day we need to fight to preserve the unity that Christ has already bought for us. And finally, the bond of peace. The bond of peace. We maintain unity by having a bond of peace. Living in peace with one another. That's contrary to the world. That's contrary to how, the, how people work. In light of our common peace with God, we all have peace with God, therefore we can have peace with one another, and that will provide unity. That will preserve unity. The last question, I know I'm out of time, but we're going to finish this anyway. <laughs> I, I apologize, kind of, but not really. Sorry, not sorry, I guess. All right, so uh, love you guys. I really do, but this is important when we get to this last point. Why do we do it? So we've looked at so far, what do we do? We live a life worthy of our calling. How do we do it? We really, all the things we talked about, it's all about love. With humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, maintaining unity, bond of peace. It's all about love. We love one another. We need to love one another. That's how we live a life worthy of our calling. But why? Why can we do that? Why do we do that? Well, let's look at these last couple verses here in verses 4 through 6. There's one body and one spirit. Just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time here. It's pretty self-explanatory. But what does the Bible say we are as a church? It says we are one body. We are the church. We are one body working together. We already talked about that. We need to be a body with Christ as our head. That is unity. One spirit. The Holy Spirit is working in us. It's interesting that he says this. I found this as well, that just as a human body, a, a physical body, needs a spirit to give it life, so the church as a body needs the spirit to give it, give it life. And so the spirit gives us life. We have one spirit that we are together under, one hope, eternal life in Christ. That is our one hope. We don't all have separate hopes. One Lord, Jesus is the one and only Lord over all and we trust him together as one. One faith, 
This is the basic doctrine of salvation, the faith of knowing that Jesus Christ is the one who brings salvation through grace, through the faith we have, the grace that he's given. As we come to know Jesus, that is one faith, one baptism. We are all immersed into Christ together. Baptism, remember, can mean immersion. The idea is not that we were all dunked in water. The idea here is that we are all immersed into one group, immersed into one body, immersed into one family, immersed into Jesus Christ. And one God and Father who is over all. We have one God who has united us. The key word here is what, church? One One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. If all of these are one, we have all of this in common, then we too can be one with one another. That is Paul's point here. But we aren't one because we manufacture it. Let's remember the rest of Ephesians. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, because of who he is, he is the one that has brought unity. Let's live like it. And so here's the questions we need to ask. Are we walking worthy of our calling? Every single person here needs to ask that question. Are you walking worthy of your calling? Are you giving God the glory through believing in Jesus Christ and being united with your fellow believers? Are you doing that? Second question is much like it. Are we truly glorifying God through our unity? The fact that we are together as one, that we love one another, that we are united with one another, gives glory to God, not only to each other, but also to this world. Are we glorifying God through our unity? Next question, is our unity in Christ seen in our love? I just said that basically, but if we're really united, we're going to love one another. We're going to be humble We're going to be gentle. We're going to be patient. We're going to forbear with one another. We're going to maintain uh, unity through peace. If those things are missing, then we are missing out on what Christ has died for. He died to give us salvation and he died to give us unity. And do we really, really believe that we are all one? As Christians, do we really believe that we are all one or are we living a life in which it's all about us, that we are ourselves and we're not worried about the rest? We are all one. We need to remember that going forward. Whatever the future holds for this church, we need to be one. We need to go forward together. We need to submit to one another. We need to love one another, even in disagreement. And then we can have true unity. That is what God has called us to. And so next week, we're going to go on in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at what unity looks like and how it is, even further, how it's maintained in the church. How is a group we can maintain together? And so that's where we'll be next week. And so with all that, I want to read one last passage. I was going to do this after the song, but I took too long, so we're not singing. So we're going to go to Romans real quick. Romans. Uh, and I want to read this in, as, we, as we close. Um, I'll read this, and then I'll, I'll close with some prayer. But even before I read this again, I, all this talk about unity, you might think, I don't understand why I would be united with another person? Well, probably it's because you don't know Jesus. If you're really confused about what it means to be united with somebody else, then you probably don't know what it means to be united to Jesus. He came to this earth. He lived a perfect life for you. He loves you deeply. 
And because he died for your sin, all that you've done wrong, all the selfishness that you've had in your life, you can come to him and ask him to forgive you for your sins. And you can spend forever with him in heaven. And you too can have part of that one hope, that one faith, that one Lord that we all have here. And if you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, you have not committed your life to him, make today the day you do it, and then you can become one with us. We'd love for you to do that. Please talk to me or someone else that you know knows Jesus. They would love to introduce you to him. So as we come to Romans, I want to read from chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. And this is what we read, very simple. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is my prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for the love and unity that you have already bought for this church not only our church, but the church in general. But Lord, I thank you that you have died for us, that you have given us grace and that we can have faith in you and be together with you and be one in you. And I pray, Lord, that that reality would be lived out in our lives. And I do pray, even as we just read in Romans, that you would grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is you. Lord, allow us to glorify you together this morning and in every step of the way. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.